This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. I am Avery R. Young. I am a writer, performing artist, and I also am a teaching artist. I teach creative writing and theater or performance in various schools throughout the city. I am from Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> What's up? Let's start with the JB joint. Cause he's he's to me my foundation. James Brown was is a favorite of my mother's. And legend has it that when my mother was carrying me, she always listened to James Brown. If James Brown was on TV, if James Brown was in concert in Chicago, my mother was there. She was at a James Brown concert and she was doing all the splits and dancing and things of that nature. And somehow, when I was a little baby, if I hear James Brown's voice, I would stop crying, I would pay attention, I would walk up to the TV and I'm like, this is just a little boy. So, James Brown, <laughs> with the, the spooky wookie voodoo of my family. <laughs> yeah. They always say that, you know, I got the JB honest because it was it was something that they believe my mother fed me as I, she was carrying me in the womb. So I was very familiar with James Brown voicing before I could even recognize that this, or who James Brown was. When I found out who he was just from a comprehensive thing, I think I was like eight. But when I really like found out who he was, like as it resonated again to me as an artist, probably when I was 21, when I then found out who I believe <laughs> JB is. His importance to music, his importance to history, his importance to culture, and also his importance to what it is that I do. Take some of these songs. That's what it was. You can't be greedy. <laughs> Take some and leave some is on the payback album. Which, when I get the, the payback album, or get purchased the payback album, I was purchasing it for the payback, you know. Uh, but that that album is powerful. It has mind power on that joint. And that's that, you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> you hit to yourself. But take some of Lee's song for me is just this really, I get really his commentary about like capitalism. Capitalism works when you know you get a lot of money and don't spend <laughs> enough money. And this whole idea of the economy, this is how this works. We are in a deficit because there's so much money, there's more money being spent than more money than there is the money that's being made. JB saying, look. You really need to figure out what is a, a fair way of distributing, right? Because you just you can't have it all. 
Because when, if you take it all, then it leaves somebody else without something. When I ask my young, when I ask my students to fantasize about a world, like imagine a world, they always, 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 for the most part, especially in communities, impoverished communities, always, it's always money. Always talking about money. They always imagine a world where they have all the money they can spend. It's not about blue clovers and, and purple horseshoes. <laughs> You know, that's not the imagination. The imagination don't go to dragons and and princesses and frogs and things of that nature. They imagine having as much money as possible to do anything they want to do with. One boy wrote, <laughs> Javon wrote, he would just go out of America. If he had all the money, he'd just go out of America. Now, I don't know what about... <laughs> America makes him want to run from it if he gets some money. <laughs> but clearly, he would not be in America if he had some money. Take some, leave some, really JB's commentary of, to me of making or switching economics that is more fair and is evenly distributed by people, which can sprinkle some issues with communist theory <laughs> but of course America makes communism seem like an enemy yeah. uh, outside of a outside of just another way in which another way in which a world is so here to take say something JB is JB is very direct. There's nothing. Another thing, and I guess, I guess, also with JB, I think was the, the important thing to understand about James Brown too is his ear to what is going on in urban communities in America at the time he's making music. He's like hip hop. He is the voice of the common person. The person who's in the neighborhood, the person who's in the street. He's not necessarily from, and could be at this point in his career that he makes his album. It really could be not even necessarily concerned. You making, you make, you making love songs, <laughs> but he's he's basically at this point. He has a band full of young musicians that all that come from these neighborhoods, and he understands what's going on in these streets. And his, you know, when you think about. And songs like um, Get Up, Get Yourself Together, and he's just naming these communities in America with, with people of color. And they will let you know that he really, really had to have his foot in those spaces to even to call him out. Right? And he's calling him out, or he's saying these things that at this point is really unparalleled in popular music and doesn't become the norm until hip hop. Get yourself together and that funk is so 
the important thing though about music is that vibration in music allows people to be engaged in places, engaged in ways in which they wouldn't be in some other form. Because Malcolm X is just as, to me, as present in Motown as he is in Fela or James James Brown. The idea that Barry Gordy had was he was, he know what the white kids in America were listening to, and that was music made by people of color. <laughs> right? The, the issue, though, was when the music music from black musicians were marketed as such and to carry this music in stores could be a danger or it could be a danger to play these this music on the radio because of you getting people pulling money from the radio station so what he had to do was create a music that was more accessible and engaging this white audience that was that was our it wasn't before Motown there wasn't nobody listening to well white kids wasn't listening to people of color in the south there was segregated there was segregated dances and concerts meaning for a segregated concert to exist there had to be color folk <laughs> and white folk in the building and the rope and many times that rope that divided them two got torn down and that's what vibration that's what music you know that's what music does A lot of it is about giving black people pride and confidence in themselves so they can then construct a, a moral code that indeed makes them be able to be in a world with other people, right? If you love yourself, then you don't really hate anybody else. And if you love yourself, you can show somebody else that okay, you're something other than what we thought you were. I think in James Brown cases, it's, it's more of a, this is who I am. It's not, it's not like, stay away, to, stay the fuck away from me. His music wasn't like, oh, you whites, oh, you crackers, or nothing like that. He wasn't making that type of music. He was making this music saying, one, I'm black and I'm proud. I don't want nobody giving me nothing. Open up the door and I get it, you know, get it myself. My power, if you don't work, you can't eat. And again, in all of these songs were, I believe his audience were people of color, but take some, leave some, or you don't work and you don't eat is a mantra that anybody can work on. If you don't work, you can't eat. If you don't work, you can't eat. If you don't work, you can't eat. No, if you don't work, you can't eat. James Brown, when I was eight, was the black good dude on TV that was sweating, had perm, he danced, and he was amazing. This dude is dope. And again, I had this already this affinity to James Brown. And I'm like, okay, it's just like it was clear. If you if you have a vision and something is blurry, and then it, something comes clear. And, and at this point, around like 10 and 11, my music is what I'm listening to is in WA, hip hop basically, R&B, and I'm listening to I Wanna Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. <laughs> I'm listening to I Go To Work by Kumo D, you know, I'm listening to all the, I'm listening to all this stuff, and then 21, when I am now listening to James Brown again, it's a new thing, it was like I was seeing him, but I wasn't hearing him yet. And at 21, I'm looking at, wow, okay, I see him, but then I'm looking at Michael Jackson, and I'm looking at Prince, and I'm looking at the influence that James Brown had on those people, 
And now I'm also understanding when I'm thinking about how I'm creating and how I present my work, I'm like, okay, a lot of this aesthetic is in me too. No wonder. No wonder. It is when I'm 21 that I get these stories about, oh yeah, your mother was James Brown all the time. And when you was little, you were going, that's when I get these stories about this James Brown and my, I stopped crying and they put some JB on, I went to sleep. And they never understood it. How did you put on some loud ass James Brown music and the baby go to sleep? <laughs> but I rock, and, I rock myself to sleep. That was, that was like, you, you, I'll just be dancing and go to sleep. And that's what they, my connection to JB is. But then again, at 21, I'm getting a bit more um, versed in musical history. So James Brown makes that much more sense to me at 21 than he does when I'm When I was born, we were living on the south side of Chicago. We lived in the Inglewood community. And then when I was, when I became eight, we moved to the west side of Chicago. And when I first moved to the west side of Chicago, we were basically integrating the neighborhood. We were the second black family on my block. And in that, you see the black people moving in or the two from the from the two black families who are now on a block. Now you see for sale signs. <laughs> so on the North Austin community, two black families move into on a block like within two weeks of each other, and then all of a sudden you see these four sale signs on people's lawns. Like they gotta go, they gotta be <laughs> up out here, and then uh, and then then they're replaced, and these people in these homes are replaced with people who look more like me. So the the smell of the block becomes different. What the music that's coming out of the windows is different. And my family was very, we were very like religious and we went to church all the time you know and anytime i heard secular music was through my cousins i never heard it through my big mom big mom was in church she listened to church music she listened to church music but you understand when you listen to james brown you listen to church music that's what he listening to is, is a lot of it a lot of his music is call and response a lot of the way in which he performs is through ritual at some point you know, the spirit takes over and people are moving and dancing and they're, and they're free. And JB is all about always being in that, that space. Very cognizant of what's going on. He's finding motherfuckers. <laughs> he's, count, he's counting. He's very, very like God in that thing. Like he has his eye on the stereo. He, he's very aware of everything that's going on. But then at the same time, there's something about him that's out of body, <laughs> which could be what is heightened all these other senses. Which is probably why his senses are so heightened. Because he's just so out of body in, in, in places like this dude, what he's able to do with his body. What he does naturally with his body, people practice. People practice to emulate. And they're trying to figure it out. And he's just something that he's doing. He's just moving and he's dancing and, and everything that he says and either way in which he moves now becomes relevant to a people. That to me, we're working on something very higher than just human. What he was doing was even beyond his color. Magically, it's beyond color. It's it's crazy. And then a song like Take Some and Leave Some is about everybody benefiting from wealth and what wealth is. <laughs> Tell the politicians, the hustlers, live and let live. Just take some and leave 
leg. What's happened to my leg? I was born. This what happened. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the voodoo story. You want to hear the voodoo story? Okay. I'll tell you the voodoo story. Voodoo story is... <laughs> voodoo story that when my mom was carrying me, she was wild. She was wild. She was dancing. She, <laughs> she would do all these things that a woman who's pregnant is not supposed to do while they're carrying a, a baby. She would dance and split and... and She'd go to church and she would she would be in the spirit and, and well, as they say, catch the Holy Ghost. And my um, big mama said one time it was Family and Friends Day and she went to this church and she had started shouting. And I think I believe she had passed out. And at this point, they had a junior usher board, a junior usher board, which is basically younger kids during the ushering. The usher role in the Baptist church is to welcome and see people, but it's also to assist people through the Holy Ghost, right? And if that's holding them or bounding them or putting a, a blanket or a sheet over them or whatever it is, this is what the ushers do. And while my mama had passed out, the junior ushers had grabbed her by her legs and started dragging her down these stairs. And so my mother, my big mama was like, you lucky just your feet, because this thing could have been wrong with you. <laughs> and my mama is, is wild. It's, she's just wild. She's, she's little, she little woman, full of energy, and like all she was was a big belly. But that didn't mean that she raced down the street. She was boogie and dance and all that. A lot of it, like to know me, is like the, the life force in me is, is from birth. My mama, she was full of life as a pregnant woman. She wasn't, she wasn't one of wobbling duck. Pregnant women carrying me. Born, I have my club foot and a bow leg, and so I went through a lot of corrective surgery at the beginning of my life. And at like 13, I decided to stop like having surgeries, because again, I would be like in the hospital every summer, every winter break, and they were just trying to correct my leg. At some point, in the earlier stage in life, it was, it was it was experiments. Then when I became like 10, I met this doctor by the name of Dr. Coley. She was taken aback because she just said, your feet are something I see all the time in a third world country. And it's a bit of malnutrition. It's not nothing that I normally see in America. So I was, I was amazing to her. And, and she was just kind of frustrated too because even though I had cast, it didn't stop me from doing, you know, they would have to put cast well, they tried <laughs> to keep me from walking and stuff by putting casts all the way up here, giving me body casts. And when I would walk in the hospital on crutches and like moving, she was like, Dude, Watch me. you standing up walking with a body cast. I'm like, Yeah, I figured I it, it out. Hey, I got something that makes me want to shout. I got something that tells me what it's all about. <laughs> Going into seventh grade, it's my eighth grade year. That was the longest I ever had been in the hospital. And I had like went in the hospital on my birthday and didn't like get out of the hospital till like October. And didn't like go back to school till like February. And I was at home in a body cast for months. Michael Jackson bed had came out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at the premier band I watched in in the hospital. You know what I mean? That's all this stuff was happening when I was in, coming in in eighth grade. So when it came me going into high school, I was like, I can walk and I'm just good. I'm just good. I just don't want nobody cutting on me no more. And Big Mama just understood it. She just she she felt like had she lived my life, she would understand why I made that decision. She she drink coffee, she drink tea, and then go home. She lie woman, she lie woman, dressed in green, 
silk stockings with golden seams. C-line woman. C-line woman is far as in my life. Nina Small, okay. Nina Small. This is how Nina Small entered my life. Older, I think 22. I'm sitting at my big brother's house and I hear strange fruit. Now, I've heard strange fruit before. The first time I ever heard strange fruit scared the Jesus out of me. I was, I never forget. I was like in, I was in eighth grade. I came home from the hospital and I had turned on the TV and it was late at night. And I wasn't even supposed to be in the front room. I was supposed to be laid up in my own damn bedroom. <laughs> I went in the front room and I turned on the TV. I just so happened to turn on the TV. It was a documentary on Billie Holiday and she was singing Strange Fruit. And I was just caught up. I was caught up in everything. I was caught up in what she was saying. I was caught up in her voice. I was caught up in what I was feeling. At the time, this history. And it was really dark. So it was more like a ghost story when I first heard the song. <laughs> Singing the song, and all of a sudden, and I always make this joke about my big mama, that or at a certain point when people get old, they don't walk. <laughs> they float. You never hit these motherfuckers. Me and my sister, we all laugh about it now, because that's one of the things you would never hit this damn woman walking. You know, all of a sudden, she would just be there. And you'd be like, how did you just get here? Like, she could, I was like, I swear for God, she didn't walk. She floated. She flew. Whatever she did evaporated whatever she did she just showed up and she's like go to bed and it scared everything out of me it scared everything she's like go to bed i'm so scared i turn off the tv and i and she's like how you get out of here anyway <laughs> and how you get out you gotta get back here you know and, you know and she and went off or whatever and floated all the way and i remember just thinking the whole night, I couldn't even go to sleep. It was just like strange fruit, strange fruit, strange fruit. Pastoral scene of the gallant south. Them big bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Magnolia, clean and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Years later, 22, hearing Strange Fruit from me and Simone, I was familiar with the song, but I wasn't familiar with the voice. That was the first time I ever heard Nina Simone. And I remember hearing it, but it's just that much more haunting, that much more scary. And I was at this point, I was watching 60 Minutes. <laughs> I watched 60 Minutes and I heard Nina Simone's voice. And it just kind of disrupted me so much that I went back to where the music was and I asked my brother, I said, who is this? And he was like, Nina Simone. I'm like, Nina who? Nina Simone. And my friend Tracy was like, you don't know who Nina Simone is? She, Tracy King is a, is a poet. And she was like, well, sit down and get to know a Nina Simone song. That's what she said to me. Sit down and get to know a Nina Simone song. And the record that they were playing at the time was, like, I think, the best of Nina Simone or something she like that. And Sea Line Woman is on this record. Sea Line Woman. Black dress on for a thousand dollars She wail and she moans See I'm woman Wiggle, wiggle Turn like a cat Wink at a man and he wink back Now child, see I'm woman Being the house era of Chicago A house here 
It's not necessarily a house song, but it's a song they play at house parties. <laughs> because of the speed, because of the meter. And I'm pretty sure Nina Simone never thought that she was creating a song that motherfuckers would dance to like that. <laughs> or holding that, that reverence. It was, was Nina Simone and the song was fast and we was beating it and I thought that it was funny because she was talking about wiggle, wiggle, purr like a cat. Wink at a man and he winked right back and then there's this whole tradition of the blues in that song and running the dozens and you're talking about this woman and sea line woman is not necessarily a, a nun. <laughs> She talk, she talk about, you know, she talk about a little harlot, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> She's talking about, as my big mama would call her, a woman of ill repute. Sea <laughs> lion woman is, sea lion woman is, is, is crazy. Sea lion woman, black dress on for $1,000, she'll will and moan. And, you know, I'm just like, wow. And then it's just, it's, it's this flute and it's this percussion. And it's these, and it's this call and response, sea line, and it was everything, again, reminiscent of what it was to be, again in church. The next day, I went to Reckless Records and I bought everything Nina Simone. I, I think it was about three CDs. It was see three. It was the Wild as the Wind, Nina Simone Live, and like Nina Simone After Dark or After Hours or something like that. And I went home. And I started playing it, and I just fell in love with this woman. I'm at this point in my life at 21, 22, where I'm writing poems and I'm performing poetry and I'm making these decisions about what am I going to talk about in my art? What am I going to focus on? At that point, I had not been writing things that I thought were what I call diary entries. Like a lot of people work and people always say my work is not personal and I'm like it is even if it's social it's personal because it's, I don't know how art can't be personal. I always thought that writing about Emma Till happens because I'm in in my personal life. I walk into a room of young people who don't know who Emma Till is and we are on like 71st Street which is named Emma Till Boulevard and I'm like well how the fuck y'all don't know who Emma Till is? <laughs> Till is on the south side of Chicago. And so I was like, well, let me write a poem about Emmett Till so that you all will know who Emmett Till is. And that to me is from a personal experience. And the same thing when Nina Simone was doing her work, she was like, I need to write something so people understand that when she write Young Get to Them Black, she wanted people, she wanted black people to kids to know you fly. You fly. Nobody ever really told you you're beautiful. No one ever told you that you fly. When she says you're young, gifted, and black, she she knows exactly who she's talking to. And I mean, <laughs> she knows who she's talking to. I mean, she knows who she wrote the song for. You know, she knows why she wrote the song. She's a very, very intelligent artist. Very in control of what she's doing. And because you had artists like Nina Simone and James Brown and Gil Scott Heron, for that matter, that did this work about valuing or bringing value to people of color through their music. And that's all it's about, right? You birth this new age of this new thought of people who just believe the devaluing of people of color is a system. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. I discovered Gil Scott Heron. First song that I know about him is was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised due to my uncle. He listened to music like The Last Poets, listened to Bam. A lot of music came out of the Black Arts Movement. Uncle Perry 
it just it was just a very militant man. He was a very militant man. But again, I didn't understand who Gil Scott Heron was until I was like in high school. And I met this guy by the name of DJ Madrid. I met him when I was 15 years old. I was working at Jewel and I was bagging groceries. He was a cashier. And Madrid invited me over to his house one time because he was like, you're a little militant brother, aren't you? It was Columbus Day. I was out of school and I was working that day. And he turned around to me. He says, how you enjoying your holiday, my brother? And I said, ain't my damn holiday. Columbus to discover America. <laughs> I was talking when I was 15. Columbus to discover no damn America. Yeah, but I had already knew that. I had known that that much the bit of knowledge since I was nine. Happy the days from once we roam. The land completely free. Good was the times when village heads dictated policy. Abundant was the game. Peaceful relations we all had before the white man came. Madrid just started giving me books, and I read them, and I bring them back to him, and he give me another book. And he was like, I want you to come over to the house. And he came over to the house, and he was, at the time when I walked up the stairs, I was hearing some from the last pause before the white man came. And I just laughed. I was just laughing. I said, Uncle Perry just play this. <laughs> when I was little and again when I was little I was like okay this is what I was exposed to but at that point as a 15 or 16 year old person who now was kind of expressing that politic and I was very impressionable and like I said as, as history tells it he just gave me this book and he gave me some records and when some of these records with these Gil Scott Heron listening to these Gil Scott Heron records I was familiar with the revolution will not be televised. And from partying, I was familiar with the bottle. <laughs> That's the song they played at House Parties. The bottle. But the extent of his work I didn't get into until like I was twenty around twenty one, twenty two and started to listen to him, Nina Simone, James Baldwin and James Brown. And I, I have to say Oscar Brown Jr. I would say I like mine five like deep influences especially because of the work that they're doing especially the work they're doing of understanding historical and social narrative inside of music and what it can be inside of music you see that black boy over there running scared his old man in the bottom uh, uh, he done quit his nine to five he drank full time and now he's living in a bottom My mother, well, all my family sang. My, my whole family sings. Cousins, sisters, all of them sing. Been singing in the choir ever since I was like six. Yeah, I was singing in the choir when I was like six years old. Stories again from older people in family. I've always singing. Always been singing. Always been singing. The, I guess the biggest influence is the gospel influences because it was the, in those formative years, it was what I was around the most. It's like all this church in me. So, you know, a lot of it is church. And as I get older and start to navigate myself through the city and I'm introduced to house, I'm introduced to hip hop music and, and I'm digging that. Then as I, in 96, when I start performing, and reading poetry, I noticed a thing about me that's different from most poets and other performers in Chicago at that time is the fact that my aesthetic is so gospel in the church. So now that becomes the focal point of the work, how to build upon that aesthetic to study the artists that did those did those things and figure out what I can do inside of that that's different or that would be taken or that would be pushing the art forward so that's why I came up with the, the concept of urban hymns that you know what I said the, the blues man who prays and the preacher who cusses right that I would take these 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 sermons 
and give them the same treatment that James Weldon Johnson gave, the biblical stories. But now these stories, though, would be about things that I see every day in the, just in the streets of how I grew up, or these things about the culture and this history of black folk in America. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. When I, when I was turned 22, that was the year I began reading poetry. But I've been doing that since writing since I was eight. When I wrote my first poem, I wrote my first poem because this teacher in third grade told me that I was made out of dirt and she told my white classmate that she was made out of sand. And I was like, this bitch just called me dirty. <laughs> and I just remember just going, I just like, uh-uh. You know, this is my personality. Uh-huh. My mama and daddy did it, and her mama and daddy did it. Then I got sent to the office for talking about sex. But the lady, that's what she did, and that's when I wrote my first poem, and I wrote it about not being dirty. You know, I was just like, I'm not dirty. But she was like, oh, he writes poems. Wow. And she just looked at me different. And I learned right then and there, at that age, that if you do something to impress White folk, they look at you totally different. <laughs> they look at you totally different. They look at you totally different. And I was like, because now when the little bad boy in the classroom that was speaking out of turn, I was now I had this talent that had to be honed and, you know, and, you know, flourished. And she, she was giving me books. And it's just another case of that OPTA. My big brother had a housewoman party and he said he wanted me to read poetry along with Smokey, Arce, and Tracy King. So the first time I read poetry publicly, it was set to music, quite like Gil Scott Heron. So I was digging because I wasn't digging like, I really wasn't. They can tell you, I was just so adamant about, you gonna stop a party just to hear some motherfuckers read a poem. <laughs> Like, I don't know. They were like, no, we're going to sit you on the crate. And then I was like, sit me on the crate because then I'm not having short, you know, Napoleonic motherfucking syndrome at this point. They got to sit me on no damn crate. I was just totally like, I don't want to do it. Do it, dude. Do it. It's going to be hot. We're going to sit you on the crate. We're going to play some music. And we're going to put us on lights. And it's going to be you reading some off to some dance music. And people going to be kicking it. They're not going to, it's not going to be just like really academic, intellectual snap thing and shit. So I came into this poetry as a party. And I was like 22. I read the poem and or the couple of poems I read that night. And people were like, you should be reading a lot more. That's why I can't fuck with coffee houses, man. Get on my goddamn nerves. Deep down, y'all know that I'm right. Man, shit, I'm about to kick some trick daddy next board unite. Like, my black queen don't know that, nigga. Yo, 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 yeah, 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 yo, yo. All I knew yo, was I'm gonna speak in the way in which I've always heard people speak in front of me, which is with passion. Like the minister. With passion, with energy, and that drew or engaged the audience. So that's all I decided to do. I was like, I'm um, I don't read poems like Red Mac. <laughs> and that's what I did. I read a poem that night and the rest is history. I then had to go read at Cotton Club. Then I had to go read at the Gill Complex. And I met Malik Youssef. I met Kumbaline. At that point, I was dead set on becoming a journalist. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about poetry. Poetry basically found me and looking back on it that was just the moment when I go okay this is when the universe has got got you <laughs> and don't you think it's a
When I first started reading poetry, I was reading off paper. And I was like, what the, what the poets that I really like, I was digging, they weren't reading off paper. Like Reg Gibson and all of them, they was reading from memory. And I was like, yeah, no. And when the minister, he starts to read from the Bible, but then he leaves the Bible alone and gets to talking and walking like he do. The language is with you anyway, because it's, it's inside you. So you don't need a sheet of paper. Even if you need a sheet of paper, you don't need a sheet of paper. When I want to go in, you know, when I say show out, <laughs> I can't have that paper in my hand. Can't have that. Can't have that paper in my hand. Like when I look at James Brown, he had no paper in his hand. I look at Yul Scott Heron, he had no paper in his hand. And then Simone playing classical music, and I'm looking at a, sh a sheet of damn music. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not looking at music. She playing this from fear and knowledge. I fuck my money up. Damn. Now I can't read up. Ran up in his spot. spot. Just to get my stats up. Now I'm back on deck. So shout it, what the fuck you want? Heard he talking shit. shit. But this ain't what the fuck you want. Lock my CEO up. Now it's back to poker. Niggas talking shit, bro. Hang him by the rope up. Hit him with the chopper. Call that shit hot llama. Call me Waka Flocker. That they can't. When I start teaching work, I ain't know what the fuck I was doing. I mean, I just, it's like, how do I teach what I do? I can't teach what I do. I can teach poems that I've already read. Stuff that kind of inspired me, but that's then what becomes my work or my curriculum, right? Is how do I begin to teach the fundamentals of writing and performing through Nina Simone and and James Brown and things of that nature? And it's it's been cool. It's really it's been real cool. It's been really it's 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 different again because like I said, this generation their soul music is hip hop. When they're listening to Waka Flocka Flame. When you listen to the purists, the hip hop purists, and don't understand Waka Flocka Flame. But I understand Waka Flocka Flame in the, in the essence of energy. The way in which kids are engaging with this abandonment. And it is speaking to an energy and a spirit that Capital D just doesn't. For me, I make the music I make. <laughs> and somebody else has just the right to make the music they make. And People can only cook with what they know to cook with. They only can cook with the ingredients in their kitchen. That's all you can prepare. If you don't have the skillet, <laughs> you got to figure out how to cook the shit in the pot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens. I think that's what happens. People, some people, when you go in their kitchen, they got a lot of shit. They got a lot of ingredients. They got a lot of meats. They have a lot of vegetables. And some people have very limited ingredients or spices and herbs. And so they only can create that. And because I make the music I make or I perform what I perform, I mean, that's what I go, that's what I go to the store and get. That's what I go to go feed myself with. my peers about when they always complain about kids and music. I'm like, we were kids and we listen to music the way we listen to music and when you grow, you mature and so does your musical taste. Well, hopefully <laughs> your musical taste grows. And I think what we take for granted is that these kids understand that what they're looking at is entertainment. I don't think they buy into this shit is for real. As much as we think they do, because they understand for real is what, what happens after they leave the TV alone. After they walk into the street. They got some real ass shit going on in the street. They dealing with real ass, you know, they dealing with real ass life. And I'm not just talking about kids in poor communities. I mean, I've been in schools in rich communities and I'm looking at kids with their arms 
you know, with bandages on their motherfucking arms. And I know what that band-aid mean. You've been doing something self-destructive to yourself right about now for whatever reason. Yeah. So, and I can't say because you listen to Kirk Cobain, you, you, something done got, something is real that transcends the music. And only thing that the music can do is transform you out of that shit that's hurting you. I think that's the power of all this shit, of all of what we're talking about. The power of soul music, the power of hip hop music, the fact that when you, as I'm thinking, oh, those moments in which I am listening to music and these particular songs, it is, it was in the midst of a transformative moment. I'm at a party. I'm at a, I'm at a party, and I'm not thinking about oh, what goes outside this damn door. Right now, I'm in this space. I'm in this energy where we're celebrating. We getting down. We boogieing. I'm getting this message that of uh, Gil Scott Heron, dollar nine, get a bottle of wine, dollar nine, get a bottle of wine, dollar nine, dollar nine, a dollar, 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 whatever the DJ doing to make you go. Ah! <laughs> what you hear? If you that into the, if you that into the, you know what the DJ is doing in the, in, the, in the music. So, so those those moments are transformative moments that lead you out of your circumstances. That what makes the music again. That what makes to me. That what makes music so make some music so powerful. The interesting the more interesting thing is that then even in those moments of transformation, how then it transforms in life. I know that hip hop matters because everything matters. In the context of hip hop, it gave voice to the voiceless. And now it functions as a portal for a lot of other people from different cultures to come together in ways in which Motown did or those segregated circuit joints did when um, that rope was thrown down. It matters to those people. And people matter. And as long as people matter, anything that those people create will matter. Because at some point, hip-hop exists because somebody was unheard. <laughs> and decided you don't hear me. It matters because people are heard every day. That's the, that's the sentence. The only sentence. It matters because people are